You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Welcome to the October 1st edition of Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin. We recently observed the international global climate strike that took place on September 20th, 2019. People all around the world are demanding that their leaders take action now to reduce greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that are driving climate change and extreme weather events. In the U.S., there is talk about a Green New Deal as a necessary policy to mitigate climate change. A Green New Deal would create new jobs. Maybe some of those new jobs would use biotechnology and bioengineering to create new tools that could mitigate the effects of climate change. In today's episode, locally sourced science contributor Mark Sharvari speaks with a scientist who studies bacteria that can use sunlight and electrons to fix carbon from the atmosphere. Buzz Barstow, assistant professor in Cornell's Department of Biological and Environmental Engineering, talks about rewiring carbon fixation. Later on in the show, Mark visits Mann's Science Library on the Cornell campus during one of their chats in the stacks. He speaks with the writers of the book, Communicating Climate Change, a Global Open Access Guide for Educators. You'll also hear Luisa Torres with this week's Science News and Patricia Waldron with the Science Events Calendar. So without delay, let's hear Mark Charvari's interview of Cornell scientist Buzz Barstow. This is Mark Charvari reporting for Locally Sourced Science. And I interviewed Buzz Barstow because he has a really interesting approach to mitigating climate change. And during these past few weeks, when climate change came back to the attention, well-deserved attention, of many humans on this planet, I wanted to see what his approach is. I have known Buzz for over 15 years. He was in graduate school here at Cornell, and he just recently returned to be a young faculty member at the Department of Biological and Environmental Engineering. Uh, where, where to begin? Uh, hi, I'm Buzz Basto. Uh, I, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biological uh, and Environmental Engineering uh, here at Cornell. Uh, I'm a fellow of the Carl Sagan Institute. You know, over the past 80 years or so, Applied biology, you know, through vaccines, antibiotics, recombinant protein drugs, engineered microbiomes today, has really revolutionized medicine. And over the next 80, we think it's going to revolutionize sustainable energy as well. Right now, my lab's working on, uh, on rewired carbon fixation. We're trying to combine the sort of the explosion in the availability of renewable energy, uh, say wind and solar, with the flexibility of biological metabolism. I grew up in England, in the north of England, and uh, when I was growing up, we only had four TV channels. So they were all pretty highbrow. You didn't have time for fluff. Um, and it started with a documentary, I think it was called Equinox. And, it, and, it's, and I remember this very distinctly, saying the 20th century 
was the century of physics. And you know, physics has given us all these amazing technologies like aviation, um, radar, microwaves, uh, lasers, optical fibers, semiconductors, the transistor, rockets. But, but they said, wait a second, the, the 21st century, and they were saying this in the 20th century, the 21st century is going to be the century of biology. And I thought, that's, that's, that's interesting, because I, I remember, uh, you know, this, was, this was when I was in school, and, and uh, biology was, was largely confined to cutting up frogs and eyeballs. Physics, you know, it's, you know, it's weird, because it's, 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 it's in some ways a paper science, but it, it leaps off the page as, as alive in, in ways that biology didn't to me then. But at the same time, you know, I'm a big fan of like science fiction, and I remember reading about technologies that, and sort of watching TV shows with with technologies in them that, you know, on, on one hand were were sort of physically based technologies, uh, but at the same time they could be described as being biological. I thought, wow, that's that's interesting, but I don't I don't see anybody doing this. What am I going to do? So I went to, I actually went to university and did physics. And, but at the very end of it, I worked for a biotech startup that was founded by my advisor university, who was a particle physicist, but he wanted, he, he'd started this company to do next generation sequencing of DNA. And I thought when I got there, I was like, that's the sort of biology I want to do. And I, and I actually, I came to, I, as a grad student at Cornell to come and do like lasers and optics and that's not interesting anymore. Uh, let's do biology. So, so I, 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 did my, I did my PhD here at Cornell with, uh, in biophysics. I always knew that I wanted to do something sort of at the intersection of like, you know, science and technology. And I thought, what's the problem I want us to hold in it? And I always felt that it would be something in, you know, in healthcare. It didn't excite me because I, I, I felt that we, in terms of, say, drug development, we'd reached this point of, of diminishing returns in terms of payoff. I just don't think this is for me. And, and, and then, then Katrina happened and thought, like, that's... You know, I'd always read about the... Again, in science fiction, about, like, what, what the consequences of climate change might be, but they, I, I almost feel like I was scared off it because it seemed like... Too, too big of a problem to I don't know, wrap your head around, right? It seemed like so much of a transformation of the world. You know, it's easier to ignore it, basically, than to, to, than to sort of think, think how am I going to solve it? And then, then Katrina happened, and, and I think you can argue, you know, whilst this was this not a climate-related thing, I certainly made that connection in my mind, and I thought, gosh, this is sort of, this is it, right? Like, this is like the sort of end of civilization sort of level thing. Gosh, I, I, I still haven't got a clue about how we're going to solve this problem, but might as well try. I became increasingly convinced that biology was the, the right solution to this problem. That was, that was sort of what led me to where I am right now. So, so my first stop was, was to learn more about how to do biology uh, at Harvard Med School. There, there I worked with, with Pam Silver uh, in systems and synthetic biology. And, and we sort of realized that the key probably to the climate problem is photosynthesis. Right? So we're, we're emitting something like seven, I think seven or eight gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere. 
you know, half of that goes in the oceans, half of that goes, stays in the atmosphere. But, you know, we draw down, I think, almost 20 times that much, maybe a little under 20 times that much CO2. Well, we don't. The biosphere does. It draws down, uh, I think it's 120 gigatons a year of carbon from the atmosphere through photosynthesis. So it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination to say, if we could improve that process, even by a few percentage points, you would have that problem solved in no time. Of course, it's not that simple, right? So, so photosynthesis is, is, is amazing in terms of the, its scale, but its efficiency is lousy. And it ain't that easy to improve its efficiency. And so we, we, we ask the question, can we do this with engineered biology, with, with microbes? Uh, one of our projects, electrosynthesis, some people call it rewired carbon fixation. That's kind of a name I like, where we're trying to combine electricity, renewable electricity, and microbial metabolism to store that electricity. Traditional biology has, you know, over the past several decades, it's been very successful by focusing on a handful of model organisms, which I can, I think I can, I can count on my fingers without going to my toes. But what that means is that we've learned a lot about the core functionality of biology, but all of the, the really interesting stuff, the, the stuff that we could use perhaps to solve problems in climate, we really don't understand at all. You know, you can, you know, over the past couple of decades, you know, we've seen sequence, genetic sequencing technology get on a sort of Moore's Law cost reduction curve. What was once cost millions of dollars to do, sequence a genome, you can do for, hell, you can do for tens, hundreds of dollars now you'll be able to do for even less in a few years' time. However, the technology for, you know, for reading a genome is, is improving exponentially. The technology for figuring out what a genome does, on the other hand, hasn't really improved at all in that same time frame, or at least has improved at nowhere near the same rate. Uh, and that means that if you, if you sequence a genome today, you still don't know what almost half of it does. And those are the really interesting bits to us. So we, we developed a, a technology, uh, we call it Knockout Sudoku, and it's for quickly and cheaply figuring out what genes do. And we're, we're applying that to problems right now, particularly the, the sort of the rewired carbon fixation problem. We're trying to figure out this, this sort of interface between uh, electricity and metabolism. We, we also think that this, this sort of interface that lets, essentially lets microbe rust metals it is sort of the molecular mechanism that powered the planet before the advent of photosynthesis. If you, if you sort of wind the clock back, say, to say three billion years ago, there are such abouts, and you look in the geologic records, you'll find this gigantic pile of rust called the banded iron formations. And the, the theory is this was laid down by microbes that oxidized, reduced iron that was sort of welling up from the Earth's core. Uh, and then they used that as a source of energy and charge to fix CO2 and, and sort of powered the planet. You know, that was the base of the food chain. Now, when photosynthesis came along, that was essentially obsoleted. Uh, the amount of sort of energy that you can capture with photosynthesis, I think, I think it's about 10 times greater, if I did my math right. However, you know, these microbes still exist in small ecological niches. And we think it also gives us this sort of interface between metabolism and renewable electricity, which has 
much more of a potential to capture sunlight than, than photosynthesis. In case you are just tuning in, this is Mark Sharvari with Locally Source Science, and I'm talking to Buzz Barstow, who's an assistant professor at the Department of Biological and Environmental Engineering at Cornell University, and has a really interesting approach to mitigating climate change. Buzz is also a fellow with the Carl Sagan Institute, and with a recent conversation with Lisa Kartenegger, the director of the Carl Sagan Institute, he came up with a few scenarios that will make you think interestingly about climate change and what can happen on a planet when photosynthesis changes. As Buzz described it to me, he likes to stay on the science side of science fiction. But when you listen to the second part of the interview, you will hear that why that line can be sometimes faded. However, if you think about it, many things that you read in science fiction books actually came through. So how does this line of science and science fiction works for Buzz? And how can we think about climate change this way? Uh, I met Lisa Kaltenegger, the director of the Carl Sagan Institute, and we, we talked about our, you know, our interests. And this led us... Uh, I think, and I, and I have to credit Lisa with all of this, with, with thinking about how advanced alien civilizations, if they do, if they do in fact exist, might sort of adapt and uh, respond to some of the environmental challenges that we're facing right now. And so, so over lunch, we sketched out a series of, I, I think it was three, sort of possible future scenarios for, for alien worlds that have deployed genetic engineering to sort of adapt their biosphere to changes in, in sort of to environmental damage that they might have done. Um, I think the first one might be a, us, a, you know, a little bit like us a few decades hence. Uh, and this, this civilization is sort of, you know, it's got a CO2 problem and it's, it's realized we've got to do something about it. And they've, they figured out some biological or maybe non-biological technology for pulling down CO2 from the atmosphere. And in the first, you know, first time they use it, like any technology, it isn't great. So what we, what we see today on the Earth is a CO2 concentration that's slightly rising every year. And there's a, an oscillation about that sort of long-term trend line between the fall and the spring. And we said, well, if you were pulling down a lot of CO2, maybe that swing would be much, much more pronounced. And we think you could perhaps detect this spectroscopically uh, in the atmosphere of a planet. The next, the next thing we thought about was a more advanced, an even more advanced civilization. It might be many decades, hundreds of years ahead of ours. One of the questions that's always intrigued me about photosynthesis, the process by which plants you know, capture CO2 and sunlight, is why are they green? Why aren't they black? You know, why don't they use all the sunlight? And this civilization might have figured out how to make them black. So their world might go from a world that's green and blue like ours to a world that's black and blue. And finally, we, we, we sort of projected even further ahead. And we, we thought, you know, it might be a few hundred years later 
civilization says, you know, we're, we're fed up with this, this black world. We're, we'd really like it to go back to the way it was. And uh, they don't quite, obviously, you know, they don't quite, none of them were alive when the world was green and blue. Um, so they, but they said, well, we're going to try and recreate it. And so they, they take away all their engineered plants and they replace them. They de-extinct all of the old plants they, or they get them out of a seed locker and they repopulate the planet. But at the same time, they still have to control their atmosphere. So this planet, this, uh, I think I called it like a museum planet. It looks green and blue, but it's got this very, very, very stable CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, unnaturally stable. And we could probably detect that spectroscopically as well. It's also, you know, it's a really useful vehicle for thinking about how our own civilization might evolve as we learn more and more about how to, how to engineer biology. And it gives us a, a vehicle for thinking what, you know, what will the pitfalls be? You know, what are the dangers? Uh, what are the opportunities as well? Uh, how it might affect our society? Now, here's Luisa Torres with this week's Science News. I'm Luisa Torres and this is your Science News. Scientists at Caltech have discovered a new species of worm in Mono Lake in California. This new species has three different sexes, can survive 500 times the lethal human dose of arsenic, and carries its young inside its body like a kangaroo. Mono Lake is three times as salty as the ocean. Brine shrimp and diving flies were the only two species known to live in the lake before this study, aside from bacteria and algae. The team discovered a total of nine species in Mono Lake, all belonging to a class of microscopic worms called nematodes. All nine new species resist the high concentrations of arsenic in the lake. The researchers plan to determine how these worms are able to live in environments containing arsenic. Arsenic contamination in drinking water is a major global health concern. Understanding how worms deal with this will help answer questions about how the toxin affects the human body. This new research appeared online on September 26th in the journal Current Biology. Scientists in Spain designed a smart shirt that measures lung function. The shirt senses movements in the chest and abdomen and senses how the fabric stretches when the chest expands and contracts. The shirt can also measure the volume of air inhaled and exhaled. It also records heart rate and movement. Researchers want to test out the smart shirts with patients who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. If successful, they hope this will allow doctors to monitor patients remotely. They believe the technology might also help in other respiratory conditions, such as asthma, cystic fibrosis, or after transplantation. The research was presented Sunday at the European Respiratory Society International Congress. I'm Luisa Torres, and that was your science news. Do you have a science event coming up? Let us know by tweeting at us at FLX Science Radio. Also, we are always looking for new members of our team. Write to us at science at gmail.com. Here is Mark Sharvari reporting on his visit to Cornell's Mann Library Chats in the Stacks program. Next to a beautiful BB Lake, 
on Cornell campus, there is Mel Library. And the library is open to the public. And they have fantastic book talks that is worth to check out. My name is Mark Sharvari, reporting for Locally Sourced Science about what the library calls Chats in the Stacks. So my name is Mary Oaks. I'm the director of Mann Library and Cornell University Library hosts the Chats in the Stacks series and Mann usually has four of the book talks every semester. We try to showcase the works of College of Human Ecology and College of Ag and Life Sciences authors. So okay, so if we're thinking about framing climate change and psychological distance and trusted messengers, what are some of the ways, if, can I just have a few people call out how you would describe um, the Finger Lakes Fund and Sustainable Tompkins framing here? Local? Okay. People you know, I know them. Okay, uh, my name is Ann Armstrong and I'm a PhD student in the Department of Natural Resources and in the Civic Ecology Lab here at Cornell University. Uh, and this, book to- this talk was about our new book, uh, Cl- Communicating Climate Change, A Guide for Educators, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2018. Co-authors are Marianne Krasny and Jonathan Schultz. Where can our listeners find this book? Your listeners can find this book. Uh, it's open access, so you can purchase it um, on from Cornell University Press as a hard copy, or you can download it from Cornell Open as a PDF. You can also order it from Amazon as a hard copy or download it for free as a Kindle. So since our listeners are, are locals, mostly non-scientists, non-technical uh, listeners, I saw you mentioned Sustainable Tompkins and uh, Fingerless Climate Fund. So what is your feeling about what these local community movements can play in what kind of role they have in fighting climate change? I think local community movements are so key to climate change movements, especially because we just don't have much movement at all at the federal level. We have movement in the wrong direction. And so right now, it's the local community movements that are doing all of the legwork um, and that know local people and understand their regional and, and local needs and values, and so they're totally essential. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Marianne Krasny, and I'm a professor in the Department of Natural Resources at Cornell and also the director of the Civic Ecology Lab. We have done a lot of work with climate change education through our massive open online courses, or MOOCs, and um, we've taught our One Climate MOOC three times now, and we get international audiences, usually about 50 countries. And so it's very interesting to see what's going on with climate change and how people are experiencing it around the world. Who can take these MOOCs? Is it open to the public or is it open just to the academics? No, no, no. The MOOCs are open to anybody around the world, so anybody can sign up for a MOOC. Mm-hmm. So where can our listeners find this MOOC? Uh, www.civicecology.org is our website, so or search Civic Ecology Cornell. The climate MOOC will probably be taught again in the fall. And our next MOOC is going to be Nature Education, and that will start in March. We'll have some others <laughs> starting again in the fall, climate, and um, we're not sure what else. But uh, generally they're on environmental education and grassroots environmental stewardship. Our high school students and youth are really um, motivated and woke about climate change. And so I take a lot of hope in, in that and hope that they can move the needle. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, so I have to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
so um, we pick good books that are coming out each semester and then invite the faculty that have written the books to come and share them with our students and faculty here. And is this open to the public or is it just open to Cornell? No, it is open. It is open to the public. We try to promote the chats in the stacks throughout the Ithaca community. So where could our listeners learn about the upcoming uh, book talks? So they're um, all listed on the Mann Library website and the Cornell University Library website. Thank you so much, Mary. Yes, sure. If you would be interested in attending these talks, there are two of them coming up this semester. One is on Wednesday, October 2nd at 4 p.m. And Stephen Strogatz is going to talk about how calculus reveals the secrets of the universe. And on October 17th at 4 p.m., Drew Harwell is going to talk about her brand new book, Ocean Outbreak. Both of those topics are really interesting. And Man Library is easy access at Cornell University. It's parking right behind the building. Hopefully you will have a chance to visit. And finally, here is Patricia Waldron with this week's Science Events Calendar. Hello, this is Patricia Waldron with upcoming science events in the Finger Lakes area. Do you like math? Cornell University's next Chats in the Stacks book talk will feature Professor of Applied Mathematics Steve Strogitz, who will discuss his new book, Infinite Powers, How Calculus Reveals the Secrets of the Universe. This New York Times best-selling book is about calculus, the mathematical study of continuous change. According to Strogatz, calculus underpins some of the most fundamental and miraculous achievements of humankind, and can even illuminate the patterns of the universe. The free event will occur Wednesday, October 2nd, from 4 to 5 p.m. at Mann Library on the Cornell University campus. Learn more at events.cornell.edu. The Tompkins County Public Library in Ithaca will hold a gallery night on October 4th from 5 to 8 p.m. On display will be an art exhibit featuring images captured in space through robot eyes entitled Postcards from Beyond, a Timeline of Exploration. At 6.15 in the Borg-Warner room at the library, Zoe Lerner-Pontario, manager of the Spacecraft Planetary Imagine facility at Cornell, will give the talk As the Human Eye Could Never See. Other exhibits opening that week at the library include Three Artists Interpret Botanical Beauty, winners of the Equity Statement Juried Teen Art Contest, and a Star Wars collection. While visiting these exhibits, you can also experience the pop-up Open Art Hive, an art studio offered by a group of artists, dancers, and creative arts therapists who want to create free art spaces in Tompkins County. Find out more at tcpl.org events. If you've never seen a white deer, then Saturday, October 5th may finally be the day. Seneca White Deer, Inc., is holding its White Deer Fall Festival from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the former Seneca Army Depot in Romulus, New York. The site is home to a herd of rare white deer with a genetic mutation resulting in white fur. They were first discovered in the 1940s and protected within the fenced-off Army Depot lands. Visitors to the festival can participate in a half-marathon, 10K, or 5K race around the grounds. There will also be music, food, vendors, tours, birding hikes, and demonstrations. Admission is free, but there is a charge for the races, parking, and for tours. You can find out more at SenecaWhiteDeer.org. The Cornell Orchards is holding Cider Sunday on October 6th from 12 to 4 p.m. at their store on Dryden Road in Ithaca. The event will feature orchard walks, talks from educators and scientists, 
and the opportunity to taste fresh pressed juice. Adults who are 21 and over can also purchase a ticket for the Meet the Cider Maker Market, where they can meet 11 cider makers and try their ciders with food pairings from Cornell Catering. You can learn more at ciderweekflx.com. And finally, the Copernic Observatory and Science Center in Vestal, New York, is holding a series of family STEM hour events in October. The October 11th family night is called 3D Universe. Kids can learn about how 3D images are made and take a 3D tour of our solar system. The event begins Friday at 7 p.m. and requires admission to the observatory. And that's it for featured science events in the Finger Lakes area. You've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusen, and I produce today's show. Mark Sharvari produced the segments about scientist Buzz Barstow and the Mann Library Chats in the Stacks program. Luisa Torres produced the Science News, and Patricia Waldron wrote and recorded the Science Events calendar. We thank Joe Lewis and Cece Giannotti for our theme music and Blue Dot Sessions for their music. You can listen to Locally Sourced Science every other Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. on WRFI.org. Our next new show will be broadcast on Tuesday, October 15th. And if you'd like to listen to this current show, it will be replayed on Thursday, October 10th at 4 p.m. And you can also subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Head to our website at locallysourcedscience.org for podcast links and our show archive. You can also tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. Send us questions and suggestions at locallysourcedscience at gmail.com. Science out. <laughs>